Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From the St. Louis Public Radio Newsroom, this is The Gateway. It's Friday, November 19th. I'm Jonathan All, in for Wayne Pratt. Racially restrictive covenants have been illegal for decades, but they're still tied to tens of thousands of properties in St. Louis. Some argue it's time to address the harm they cause. To see that no Negroes or no Jewish people allowed, that does a certain violence to one's spirit. Coming up, St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff investigated how some homeowners are amending racial covenants. The International Institute has received a $1.5 million grant to help settle Afghan refugees in St. Louis. As St. Louis Public Radio's Jeremy Goodwin reports, the resettlement agency needs additional contributions to help it settle more refugees in the coming months than it ever has before. The grant comes from Pershing Charitable Trust and will go toward basic expenses for Afghan refugees, like food and rent. International Institute President Ario Benson says the agency is asking the community for a total of $3.5 million to help it add staff and develop transitional housing. It really makes us a better, stronger organization that can respond to needs as, as time goes on. It makes us become more sustainable, that's the word, as an organization. Benson says his organization resettled 123 people this week. It had never resettled more than 100 people in a single week before. It is gearing up to resettle at least 1,000 Afghan refugees. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, St. Louis Public Radio. The University of Missouri Board of Curators voted to comply with federal COVID vaccine requirements yesterday, but as Sebastian Martinez Valdivia reports, there are exceptions. According to the resolution the curators approved, the system will follow rules for federal contractors requiring them to fully vaccinate employees by January 18th. Following a Missouri executive order, however, there will be allowances for religious or medical exemptions for UM system faculty, staff, and student employees. UM system president Moon Choi brought the resolution to the curators, saying the federal funding the system would lose if it didn't comply is vital. We have hundreds of millions of dollars in federal research and other contracts and grants. And some of these projects are critically important. The university will now craft a more detailed policy, which Choi says he will vet with the curators in the future. Missouri is one of several states challenging the federal executive order in court. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia, Columbia. The resolution applies to all University of Missouri system campuses, including the University of Missouri St. Louis and Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rolla. New data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture shows the economies in rural counties bounced back from effects of the pandemic faster than urban counties. Elizabeth Dobis is an agricultural economist with the USDA. She says rural counties lost fewer jobs than urban areas. The decrease in employed workers was much smaller in rural counties than urban counties. And rural persistent poverty counties lost the fewest workers at 2.9 percent. The news isn't all good for rural counties. The report also shows rural counties had much higher rates of COVID-19 infections than metro areas. They also lost more population over the past 10 years, with Missouri down 3.2 percent and Illinois down 5.8 percent. The USDA doesn't offer analysis to explain the reason for the numbers. (music) 
Yesterday, in the first of a two-part series, St. Louis Public Radio explored the widespread use of racially restrictive covenants in the St. Louis region. The legal documents in St. Louis were mostly used to keep black families out of white neighborhoods in the early to mid-1900s. These covenants are no longer legal or enforceable, but as more homeowners discover covenants associated with their homes, they're looking for ways to set things right. St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff reports that so far, there are no simple answers. I meet Jason Flowers on a recent afternoon at the Land Records Department inside St. Louis City Hall. We're looking for a racially restrictive covenant that's tied to his red brick home built in 1911 in a southwest city neighborhood called Princeton Heights. We asked the clerk if she can pull it up. Hey, we wanted to look up a fucking page number. It is 2332, page 343. She returns shortly with a roll of microfilm, feeds it through the archaic machine, and winds it to the right page. The document is handwritten, and it's really hard to read, but Flowers eventually finds the restrictive language. It says, lots in the subdivision, including his home, cannot be conveyed, leased to, rented to, or in any way occupied or owned by Negroes. Flowers is quiet for a while, and then he starts tearing up. I ask him what he's feeling. It's sad. And a little angry. He is white, and in some ways, having grown up in St. Louis, he's not that surprised. But he also thinks about his relatives who are biracial. It's not right. No, it's never right. So how do we fix it? The answer isn't simple. Unlike some states, Missouri doesn't have a process for individual homeowners to address racially restrictive language and property records, but it can be done. Kalila Jackson is a senior attorney at the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. She's been helping people like Flowers amend racially restrictive covenants in the St. Louis region pro bono. There's not a lot of people who are familiar with the process. And if you called a random attorney, many of them probably would say, oh, well, well, this is unenforceable. You don't have to, you can just ignore it. You don't have to worry about that. But I think we know that that's, that's only half the story. The other half is how it makes people feel. And as a black woman, Jackson knows reading such covenants can be a traumatic experience. To see that no Negroes or no Jewish people allowed, that does a certain violence to one's spirit. Jackson says to make meaningful, large-scale change, the state needs to make the process of amending these covenants easier for homeowners. Some lawmakers are trying to do that. I'm State Representative Michael O'Donnell, and I represent uh, Oakville in the Missouri House of Representatives. O'Donnell, a Republican, introduced a bill last legislative session. It included language allowing homeowners to void racially restrictive covenants by adding a document that states they're illegal. He says it should have been done a long time ago. This is one of those things I look at it and say, this is in statute. Nobody's paying attention to it. Yeah, let's just get it out because... We know this is wrong. O'Donnell wasn't able to get the bill passed last session, but he says he'll try again. At least one town in Missouri has taken matters into its own hands. Pasadena Hill started out as an exclusive subdivision, built in the late 1920s with a restrictive covenant in place that barred black and Asian homeowners. Alderman Robin Titus takes me on a tour of the tiny town in northwest St. Louis County. Here's two more originals. He points to a white Spanish-style stucco home and a limestone-looking castle. That has a ballroom on the third floor. That's one that has a carriage house. Titus says residents fought to remove the racially restrictive covenant for decades as the demographics of the town changed to majority black. 
By the time it finally happened in 2016, he remembers feeling so-so about it. I mean, happy, but it's like it's something that should have been done decades prior. But to make the change wasn't easy. City leaders had to work with lawyers, gather support from the public, and persuade the Board of Trustees to pass a resolution striking the offensive language. Gino Salvati was mayor at the time, and even five years later, he says there are some lingering, uncomfortable feelings in the community. I, I will say that there are people who are still mad at me about it because <laughs> they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to mess with it. But some homeowners like Shamia Reese say people need to be talking about these covenants, no matter how difficult it is. She's at St. Louis City Hall reading a document from 1925. Back then, she couldn't have bought her home in the Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood of North St. Louis. This is the part of history that doesn't change. And so when people say we don't have to deal with our past, this right here lets you know that we definitely have to deal with it. Risa seeing the covenant is heartbreaking. She explains that buying her home is one of her biggest accomplishments. And this document is proof of why she had to work so hard to become a homeowner. Whereas you can walk straight through the door, I have to walk, skip, hop, jump, roll, crawl, sometimes rest, and get back up and repeat it all over again. She plans to frame the document and hang it in her home. Ree says she hopes seeing the covenant in black and white sparks conversations. If knowing the history of racially restrictive covenants is important, many argue so is understanding their long-lasting impacts. Neil Richardson is the executive director of the St. Louis Development Corporation. He says the racial wealth gap in the city traces back to covenants. You see the type of impact that's been created is we have black employees in the city of St. Louis making 48% of what a white employee makes. And we have home values in black zip codes being one-fourth of that in white zip codes. And that all was really created intentionally and systematically. Richardson says repairing that harm needs to be just as intentional. As head of the city's economic development arm, figuring out how to do that is part of his job. One thing that would help is getting a clear picture of where covenants exist. That's been really difficult until now. Jackson, the fair housing attorney, worked with a University of Iowa researcher to create a map that allows residents to look up whether their home has a covenant. She says uncovering that history is a huge step in the right direction. And so the reason why it's important to know where those covenants lie, where they existed, not just to address the and redress the past, right? It's also so that we can change our future. A future where an address doesn't limit opportunities. I'm Corinne Ruff, St. Louis Public Radio. That was the second story in a two-part series Corinne produced on the impact of racially restrictive covenants in St. Louis. To read and listen to her first story and to see a map of the 30,000 properties in St. Louis that have covenants tied to them, go to stlpr.org. Sometimes St. Louis Public Radio News produces 20 pounds of news that doesn't quite fit in the 10-pound bag that is the gateway. If you go to stlpr.org, you can hear and read education reporter Kate Grumke's story on the effort in the St. Louis area to ban some books from school libraries and Metro East reporter Eric Schmidt's story on how the congressional redistricting is affecting that part of the state. The editors at St. Louis Public Radio are Maria Altman, Fred Ehrlich, David Cazares, and Brian Heffernan. Our executive editor is Shula Newman. Music by Ryan McNeely of Adult Fur. We are a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I'm Jonathan All, in for Wayne Pratt. He'll be back on Monday. 
And from the St. Louis Public Radio Newsroom, this has been The Gateway. Support comes from Mosby Building Arts, a design-build company committed to remodeling the right way. Visit callmosby.com to get project inspiration for any room of your house.